So we lift up our chalice flame, the symbol of our liberal religious community the worldwide over. We lift this chalice flame up this morning for the walking of the path. And like yesterday, I wonder what words come to you when you hear those words, walking, path, walking off the path. Dogs. Blisters. Sort of feet. A good pair of shoes. Persistence. Direction. Wonder. Painful knees. Step at its side. Just one comes. Beautiful panoramic views. Where's it going to go? The elements. The horizon. Walking side by side. The road led to travel. Themes will come up <laughs> in today's theme. It is as though we have arranged it. And we have arranged to sing this morning. It's from the new hymn book, the Purple Hymn Book. It's number 11 in our songbook, written by Roger Mason and based on Taoist philosophy. Shining through the universe. <coughs> Persia, and it's about two merchants who were traveling together. Um, 
uh, Musa and Najib. And they were traveling to far off Persia. And they came to a river with all of their caravan with them, uh, plenty of horses and, and camels to carry all of the goods that they were off to buy in Persia. And they came to this place in, in, uh, in a gorge with, with high rock cliffs on either side, and it was in the springtime. And the water was just furiously going through this gorge. It was high, and it was muddy, and it was choppy, and they weren't absolutely certain they'd be able to get across, but they knew that they needed to try if they were to continue on their journey. The servants that were traveling with them managed to string a sturdy rope all the way across the river that would help to guide them on their way. And because Musa was the stronger and younger of the two, he volunteered to go first, and taking hold of the rope and moving very, very slowly across, he began to go across the river, but halfway along lost his footing, and his hand slipped from the rope, and he began to stumble, and the current began to take him away. And Najib did not hesitate a moment, did not even stop to think of the danger he was putting himself in. He simply went into the river and caught hold of his hand and caught hold of the rope and saved him. And the two of them crossed to the other side. Musa wants everything had gotten over to the other side with great trouble, of course. Musa called all of his servants to him and he said, we have to stay here long enough for you to write on the rock face up there. Wanderer, in this place, Najib heroically saved his friend Musa. And they set up camp and they made their meals and the servants set to carving. And there it stood as a testament to what had happened there. They carried on their journey off to purchase silks and teas and all sorts of exotic spices and coming back many months later with their, with their um, caravan just laden with treasures that they were going to take home and sell. They stopped in the same place and Musa and Najib sat next to one another and they looked up at, the, at the, 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 what it said on the wall, at the carved words that reminded them of that moment. And they sat and they talked, and Allah only knows what happened. It's happened to you too. Something annoyed one of them. And they began to have some unpleasant words with one another, and finally they were shouting at each other and angry. And Musa said to his servants, bring me a stick, bring me a stick right now. And they did, and he walked over to the edge of the river, which was now at a very low flow and going very slowly. And in the sand there, he began to write, Wanderer, know that in this place, in a trivial argument, Najib wounded his friend Musa. And the servants came over to him and said, Master, do you not want us to write it on the wall? And Musa said, no. He said, no, I, I want it written here in the sand, for I hope that by the time that the water and the wind blows it away, it has blown out of my heart as well. And that's another wisdom for the journey, that we need to remember, always remember what must be written in stone and what needs to be written in sand. And that's our story at the time. I'll never forget that story. And may I never forget my body. And we're going to explore some physical things now. This is our chanting bit. And I just want you to experiment now with tapping of a foot. A little kind of swinging hips, <laughs> maybe a little clicking. You've got it. It's only day two. We're building up on this one. If we turn to the back of the songbook, it's the fourth chant down. 
and we'll just keep this going for a few times. Let's see how it goes. Let your little light shine, shine, shine. Let your little light shine, oh my Lord. Maybe someone's down in the valley trying to get home, trying to get home. So let your little light shine, shine, shine. Let your little light shine, oh my Lord. And maybe someone's down in the valley trying to get home, trying to get home. So let your little light shine, shine, shine. Let your little light shine, oh my Lord. And maybe someone's down in the valley trying to get I'll be frank with you here, this is a long first session, and there are a few treats along the way to kind of keep us perky. Don't worry at all if you fall asleep. <laughs> it matters not. We've been setting off for days, it seems, doesn't it? We must surely now be well and truly on the path, on the pilgrim's route. Have you looked, I wonder, recently at the travel section in, um, in your local bookshop? Because the interesting changes are afoot in the world of travel writing. Yes, you're going to find all the traditional guidebooks. You know, the ones that tell you the best place to stay in Patagonia or the really most delicious tea room in the Peak District. You'll find the Lonely Planet guides that give a more real feel to your chosen destination. But travel writers are also branching out and they're combining the practical and the geographical with the personal and the transpersonal. Spirit, it seems, has found a way into the world of guidebooks. And yet, spirit was always there. For the earliest travel guides were written in medieval times as guides for pilgrims. The most famous being the 12th century Pilgrim's Guide, I think a full copy of which was only discovered in the last century, hidden away in the archives in Santiago de Compostela in northern Spain, that destination point for so many pilgrims, both ancient and modern. So some medieval pilgrims did have their guidebooks, although not many. They were not the norm. Most people couldn't read and books were incredibly expensive. But pilgrimage, believe me, was big business for the church and for the economies of the towns that pilgrims passed through on their way to those sacred sites. For that was, and of course still is, one of the purposes of pilgrimage, to set off on a journey with a planned destination of a sacred site where there might be famous relics, remains of saints, being kept safe and with healing powers. The act of pilgrimage itself then was thought to be a way to salvation. A pilgrimage of a goodly length was thought to reduce your waiting time in purgatory by a half, which is worth aiming for, surely, everyone. It was also, I, I knew not this until recently, it was also used as a punishment by the medieval church, a way of doing penance to right your wrongs. Now, Many pilgrims in the Middle Ages followed a standard dress code, broad-brimmed hat, russet-coloured gown drawn in at the waist with a rosary or a rope or belt, and most pilgrims would have carried a satchel or scrip to hold their own holy relics in, along with their staff, their stout stick. And they would have decorated their hats and their clothing with symbols such as the shells that we've got here or ampules containing holy water. 
I've brought in a chum at this point to, uh, to read to us from the, uh, from the Middle Ages. I just could not do it myself. Thank you, Margaret. Come closer so you'll be recorded forevermore. I want to just add one, I think, relevant fact to, to this poem. It was written by oh, Sir Walter Raleigh in the Tower awaiting execution. The execution was actually postponed while he went off on a last hope, forlorn hope, voyage to, the, uh, to America. But that failing, he came back to the Tower and was executed. So this is a pilgrimage in both senses. Give me my scallop shell of quiet, my staff of faith to walk upon, my scrip of joy, immortal diet, my bottle of salvation, my gown of glory, hope's true gauge, and then I'll take my pilgrimage. Can I bring you back for Piers Plowman as well? Oh, <laughs> this one. <laughs> this one's even more difficult. Apologies to any medievalists present. A ball and a bagger he bar by his cedar, and hundred ampoulas on his hat setten, scenes of signe, and shells of galice, and many a conche on his cloak, and case of Rome, and the vernicle before, for men should ignore and see by his seniors whom he sought had. <laughs> Thank you, Margaret. Thank you very much. I mean, there were other professional pilgrims, if you like, who wandered without a destination in early Christianity. I think this is from the, the Celtic, early Celtic Christianity. They were known as the Peregrinari Procreast, the Pilgrims for Christ, who wandered without destination in mind. To wander was their expression of faith rather like the sadhu tradition of Hinduism. But most pilgrims set out with a plan in mind. And for we too who are on a path, it's good to have a guidebook or two, to have a set of signposts to follow or, or a map of the territory to pour over. And in the world of ideas, great thinkers have devised structures and theories that can act as guides for us. Back in the early 1900s, the French ethnographer Van Gennep studied tribal groups and the ways in which they marked the key stages in people's lives. He was the one who coined the phrase, rites of passage, and through his studies of rituals connected with birth, coming of age, marriage, death, he demonstrated that an individual generally moves through three distinct phases when they move from one stage of life to another. There's that stage of separation from the part of society that they've been in before. And then the second stage is described as liminality, a beautifully evocative word which expresses that mid-phase when, when nothing is certain. Somebody has crossed a threshold but they have not yet arrived. The person is between the worlds, if you like, to use a shamanic phrase. And then there is the stage, the final stage of reincorporation. In the first phase, when people withdraw from the group, they start to move away from one place or status to another. And there may well be a, a ritual cutting. You know, perhaps even the cutting of hair when somebody joins the army is a modern version of this. But something is cut or shown in symbolic action in that way. They have left their old ways. And in that third phase when they re-enter society, there is a ritual to show their new identity, where they now belong. You could see that in college balls and uh, graduation ceremonies, if you like. Ah, but the liminal phase, that's the one I like. That period between the states, during which we've left one place or state or another, but we haven't gone anywhere else yet. That, I think is the stage of the pilgrim. 
Joseph Campbell, who I spoke of yesterday, was one of many academics whose thinking was profoundly influenced by Van Gennep's early studies. Joseph Campbell's exploration of ancient mythology led him to the structure often known as the quest or the hero's journey, which has four stages. There's the call to event adventure that I spoke of yesterday, the possibly strange event or experience, or the longing or discontent that leads an individual out of their ordinary world and draws them into a new and unknown realm. Think of Jack and the beanstalk, if you like, and his selling of that cow for a few beans and his mother's rage about that. That's his call to adventure. The next stage in Campbell's theory is initiation, the ordeals that test someone's mental and physical skills. Think of Jack's climbing the beanstalk and finding the ways to outwit the giant. The third stage is the time of revelation, the discovery of truth and of treasure, the stealing of the golden hen. And then the final stage is the return to one's community with wisdom gained and with treasure to share. Jack's return home. To the same home, but he is altered. The finding of the treasure has, has changed his status in the world and his view of himself one system of thought. Another system that I think has had a huge influence on modern thought is Carl Jung's theory of individuation. It's a theory that has shaped so much personal growth work has infiltrated into everyday thinking. Individuation means self-realisation or full and balanced personal development. And Jung believed that this process of individuation could be achieved by exploring the unconscious and by paying attention to it when it speaks to us in our dreams. According to Jung, the unconscious expresses itself also in folktale and myth. And in Jungian thought, all myths and fairy stories revolve around this theme of individuation. Myths are, so to speak, then signposts showing us a way to fuller self-realisation. This is a complex area, and if I can speed through it and it can be in any way useful, I'll have done very well indeed here. But there are four aspects to this theory of individuation. First of all is the shadow. This is the, the part of our psyche that's not yet been brought to consciousness. Some might describe it as that dark side or the negative side of the psyche, insofar only as it is the opposite of what hitherto you've regarded as making a positive contribution to your well-being. Yet the shadow is not actually a negative. It holds huge creative potential for the individual, and that bubbles up when the outer persona and the inner shadow are reconciled to one another. With this, you could think of um, say the fairy story of Cinderella, that shadow figure who's ignored and neglected by her older sisters, but who flourishes when she reaches the palace, brought out into society, no longer shut up in the basement kitchen. The, the next part of, of Jung's theory was, was that of the anima and the animus, what he called the soul image, one of the archetypal images for the man, this is the anima. For a woman, it is the animus. The anima is the feminine aspect of a male psyche. This is, this is just um, general, hideous generalization, really. But just think, you know, if you let yourself go and think of women, you know, gentle, kind, tender, patient, close to nature. <laughs> Clearly, we've all started to integrate quite well, haven't we? <laughs> The animus, the masculine aspect of the female psyche, being aggressive, asserting, controlling, taking charge, the fighting spirit. Again, these are in opposition to your persona. So if your persona is highly intellectual, for example, your soul image might be characterized by sentiment, by emotion, etc., etc. You can, you can work out those opposites. Again, our task on the process of individuation is to come to know that opposite within ourselves and to watch out 
for a very human tendency, which is to, instead of looking for something inside ourselves, find it outside and start to love the man that can clear the blocked pipes or get the car going again. And that issue of projection comes up again in the third aspect of this process of individuation, which is um, Jung termed the mana personalities that are the symbols of power and wisdom that lie deep, deep within your psyche. This is where the man gets to meet the wise old man in dreams and where the woman meets the great mother. Jung called them mana personalities because in primitive communities, anyone having extraordinary powers of wisdom of this kind was said to be filled with mana, and that comes from the Melanesian word meaning holiness or the divine. There is a real warning here from Jung about our um, terribly human ability to project this personality out onto others. If ever you think somebody really knows the answer or somebody is incredibly wise, what you're doing at that point is giving away your power to another and harming both yourself and the person that you're projecting onto. We need to reintegrate the wise one, whatever their gender, within ourselves and keep coming back to our inner, inner source. It, the whole point of this, according to Jung, is to get to the self in capital letters, that total, fully integrated psyche, which everything is united and coordinated. I'm always disappointed when I read about this to, to find that it doesn't seem to be open to most of us, this opportunity. According to Jung, you know, two great examples of people who managed to get to this point were Jesus and the Buddha. <laughs> oh, right then. <laughs> The self is the final stage of the individuation process, and I think it's worth a try, everybody. <laughs> Don't give up. These are just a few systems of thought that have been designed to illuminate this complex existence of ours. There are so many others. I had such a difficult time trying to decide whatever to focus on. But, but one more that I want to mention, just because I studied his work for so many years, was the work of Wilhelm Reich, who, like Jung, learned from Freud, but developed their own theories. Reich was very, very concerned that Freud's talking cures, he called psychoanalysis, took such an incredibly long time, involved lying down, and took people more and more into their heads and their thoughts and away from these bodies of ours, these skins of ba bags of skin and bones. So I think it is right that we have to thank for the development of body work in personal growth and for emphasizing the importance of human sexuality. Because Reich's essential theory, which you know, I really recommend to you if you like this sort of thing, was that the whole blooming universe is engaged in endless orgasmic cycles, a building up of energy to an orgasmic peak, a pleasurable release, and a gentle return to rest before the next cycle begins. Just think for a moment of waves. <laughs> you can think of that. You can stop us. <laughs> you can stay in your own bodies if you like at this moment. Or you can head outwards in your thinking because it's fabulous to just think of waves crashing. Those really big waves crashing on the seashore of volcanoes exploding, of galaxies, of that very big bang just exploding into existence. Do you know, his work is not everyone's cup of tea, but once you've read some of Reich, the whole of life does start to look a bit different. <laughs> and... Reich, if he was with us now, would say they've been sitting too long. <laughs> so I invite you, if you wish now, to just have a minute or two's wriggle break, a stand, a stretch your... <laughs> stretch your back in an orgasmic... <laughs> Come on, wriggle those hips. <laughs> 
self-limber. And really, I think we've had quite enough theories there. So I'm just going to leave you with some shapes. Much is made of the pilgrim journey being that of a circle, with return to the start as an essential aspect. Yet others speak of the impossibility of ever returning to the place from whence we came. Instead, they view the spiritual journey as a spiral, a return to the start, but yet with a different perspective. If we think of these swirling, circling images and then contrast them with this one, the line, be it straight or meandering, this line that I think comes to us from the idea of time itself ticking onwards, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years, centuries. The line that comes to us, I think, from our own individual sense of movement from birth through to death. That straight journey that seems so very clear and final to us, the individual. And yet all around, when we look out of these windows and walk in these hills, we find a cycle of life, of birth to death, decay to renewal, a journey ever onwards. And yet we only get to experience our own little tiny bit of it. No wonder then that our own personal journeys can seem so very, very important, so hugely significant to us. And some of our significance comes from what we do in life. Our achievements in the material world the badges, the labels that we wear, they give our life identity. And I've asked Rob Alton uh, to be a fellow journeyer with me today and to tell us something of his travels thus far. And Rob, I'm just introducing people in terms of their congregations. Rob, I'm very pleased to say, is a member of the congregation in Godalming near Guildford. Would you join us, Rob? Thank you. The time. Sure, you don't want me to come back tomorrow after all. No, no. <laughs> My next bit is incredibly short, so you okay. spin yours out. <laughs> I hadn't got a beginning for this talk. Um, uh, Sarah was a bit worried about that, but so I scribbled one yes, yesterday afternoon and um, and used the word labels. How nice is that? You use the word label, turn mine round, and uh, Maggie was reminding us of the importance of our labels this morning. Sheena and I have got a friend called Andrew, and if you go into a circle, like an engagement group circle, something like that, and you're asked to say your name, <clears throat> everyone goes around saying, I'm Bob, I'm so, 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 and he said, he thinks quite carefully, and he says, or sometimes, he doesn't always do it, but sometimes he says, I'm known as Andrew. And so, perhaps this talk is something concerning the gap between I'm Andrew, well, not Andrew, but I'm Andrew, and I'm known as Andrew. It seems a very small gap. Um, and in some ways, you might as well stop here and leave it all to you to discuss that gap between I'm whoever you are and I'm known as. And I think it's a big gap, and maybe that in that gap is uh, the, the longest journey, but the whole, our whole lifetime's journey between that gap. And in that gap also, there is a great mystery between the label I have, uh, and who I'm really known as. And to put it more simply, I suppose this talk is about labels. Um, and I think I'm like one of those old travelling trunks. You don't really see them anymore. Everyone has those wheelie things they pull along, and the labels you have at the airport come off the next time in case your luggage goes off to, to the wrong country. But remember those old travelling trunks with all those labels on? And some are big and vivid, and some are old and peeling. 
Um, some of you have been stuck on even by your grandparents, other people, ancestors, and some you stuck on yourself, and some you've desperately tried to scrape off. Um, so, by way of formal introduction, these are my labels. I've got an orange one here, which says Rob Olton on, um, Robert Olton. Um, by profession, I'm a, a part-time general practitioner. Um, I'm Sheena's husband. That's perhaps one of the nicer labels. <laughs> um, and my newest and shiniest one is I'm a Unitarian. <laughs> Not very long, three weeks. Um, <laughs> You're already a theme speaker. <laughs> I, forgot, I forgot to ask if it was a probationary period or not. You can hand it back at the end of that time. But where I really wanted to start, where Sarah had her doubts, I wanted to start... <laughs> I wanted to start with a baby. I wanted to start with the baby. The baby I was, the baby I am, and the baby I will be. The once and future baby. I can hear you groaning, he's going to give us his life story from 0 to 55. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. I, I am a baby. I haven't got a life story. I refuse to travel. I don't need to go anywhere else for experience. It's all here. Look, I know about your adult ways, your long, arduous struggles with hope and disillusion, your plodding towards a dream of self-fulfillment, your responsible lives, the nostalgia, the regret. I don't want to know about that. I reject the compassionate sharing of our scars. I haven't got any. I want it all now. I can have it all now. It's all here. I'm everything. But there is someone else here too. Someone who's had to live a life. It seems long, very long, and I know because I've lived it. I don't need to go to regression therapy to visit my past lives. So much of what has occurred to me seems like a past life, like a dream, almost someone else's there in memory. The idea of who I am, who I was, grows more strange and fabulous. If there's a journey here, it seems less and less like the meanderings of a unitary me through this life of experience, rather a gathering, a party in which various characters have come, acted their part and gone. No knowledge, no wisdom, no certainties, no achievement, no understanding. Only a fabulous wonder at the strangeness of it all. The baby enraptured in the eternal present. I ask the adult in me, I ask the adult in you, would you go through it all again? And I get the weary reply, no, it's all been too much. But the baby, ah yes, that baby, well he's up for anything. When I first attended Unitarian services, it seemed people were always referring to the journey. I used to joke that it should be called the Church of the Holy Journey. <laughs> and, and I kind of understand, if, if, if God's a ticklish or difficult subject for you, then it's an annoying tendency to be both transcendent and imminent, both here, now, and at and at our destination, it's pretty much going to confine you to the bit in between. <laughs> But, but I know that's unfair. That's my stuff. That's the baby who won't grow up. Peter Pan, who won't risk the adult struggle, the disillusion, the loss. I'm the one who won't, set, who won't set out. And this is my first truth. I'm the one who won't set out, who won't leave home. I'm a teenage postmodernist who denied the validity of the journey the privileging of any experience above another as a way of escaping experience, whose autobiography was to be called 50 Years in the Bathroom. <laughs> I, I'll leave you to interpret that as you wish. <laughs> but life won't be denied. 
It takes you by the shoulder, frightened and defiant as you might be. It turns you gently but inexorably around and plonks some adult responsibility in your arms. In my case, it put grown-up letters in front of my name and put a bleep in my pocket and introduced me to Freud's two travelling companions, Love and Work. And I must admit, it was a relief to be given my own little piece of the universe to look after and an identity that the world didn't necessarily ignore. Medicine gave me a life, or at least a role in the world, that for a while would answer for a life. And it was fun, and I earned money. My colleagues were mainly women. It was a life the world prescribed. But what of the soul through all those years of trying to play the game, to be successful and accepted? My life image became, as the years passed, a cul-de-sac, a blind alley, narrowing to a point. The only way forward was to wedge myself tighter in. I literally felt this image of my life at that time. Through my ego became my only story. My story became my body, and my body moved wearily from one duty to the next. There's no air, there's no space, there's no possibility. The baby inside is suffocating, is starving, and God's out there, up there, somewhere, laying down the law. And this is how it is. So that's my second truth. There's no way forward. I'm trapped. Life is there somewhere, but I can't reach it. Yes, I'm trapped. But is this I all I am? Are my life and my ego coterminous? Is there perhaps some part of me that is not I? My I may be trapped, wedged into its blind alley, but what about not I? Well, maybe baby is not I, is me, but not yet defined by the adult world, bound by its iron rules and its expectations and responsibilities. So who can find baby again? Well, as it turned out for me, the best possible baby finder, and it was Melanie Klein. Now, we seem to be having rather a psychoanalytic morning this morning, <laughs> and I apologise for that, um, but we've had Freud, Jung and Reich, so we might as well add Klein to it. <laughs> I'll try to explain to you. By one of the strange synchronicities, and the, the sort of times in our, where we can actually discern the poetry of our lives, this time of dead end for me coincided with concern about general practice in London, who were supposed to burnt out, demoralised, overworked, understimulated. And the answer was to send us on courses. They actually freed up a lot of money for us to go on courses, and they not only pay for the course, but pay for locums to cover us when we were on the course. And that will never happen again, ever again. <laughs> As I was looking for something to do, to use all this unlooked-for money, a prospectus for a diploma in Jungian psychology and spiritual healing came through the letterbox. And it turned out to be my own little door in the wall. I don't know if you remember, have you read Brideshead Revisited? And uh, he says that somewhere. He, he found the little low door in the wall that he knew others had found before him. And yes, I can't deny... Um, the ego eye can't deny it's, it seemed really flaky, you know, to be sharing dreams, intuiting healing energies, studying the various properties of the chakras, and calling on my inner child. But that little door was the door to the garden of re-enchantment, and that was what I really needed. And it was on that course that I encountered Melanie Klein. It didn't really need to be her. Um, you, for those of you who don't know, she was one of the earliest psychoanalysts who she pioneered... Uh, child analysis um, and was really contemporary with Freud um, but it could have been any of them um, but I discovered through her the crucial insight and it's one of those discoveries that stop you in your tracks and turn you around you could call it conversion um, and I came to understand that though my name and my identity my instincts and my needs are real and rooted in my body they're not exactly who I am Klein explores the interior world of the very, very young infant and its struggle to get its needs met in an overwhelming and bewildering world of adults coming and going. So the young infant is supposed to encounter a maelstrom of powerful feelings, aggression and guilt, intense love, 
extreme solipsism, devastating loss, inexplicable restoration, envy, gratitude, huge curiosity, and ultimately a, a gradual awakening to the existence and realities of others and their feelings. I think it sounds a bit like summer school, actually, reading that back. <laughs> so Klein's infant creates a complex psychological world within which it can make sense of and begin to manage all this, from where in time, hopefully, hopefully, a secure enough ego, a sense of self can arise. It's like a fairy tale world, and it's not difficult to analyse a lot of our favourite fairy, fairy stories from a Kleinian angle. And it's also not surprising that she called this world fantasy. Others have called it the unconscious or psyche. You might even prefer to call it soul. But eventually my consciousness, my own ego self-identity, will arise out of fantasy from my soul. But will never subsume it, will never control it as much as it may desire that. My ego is not who I am. Now, I don't know, I don't think Klein had any religious or spiritual beliefs. Um, Klein's baby, in essence, creates his own soul out of the stuff of the world. But for me, it was still the soul. It seemed that I'd found a spring of living water, the pearl of great price, the buried treasure. And it was interesting that it was through the agency of those relatively obscure early 20th century psychoanalysts. And then, and even now... They're shunned by the religious and the artistic, artistic and scientific establishment. So this is my third truth. My ego is not who I am. And that third truth is my healing truth. And it's what I can say to you about healing. I think this talk was supposed to be about healing, doesn't it? But that's, we started Yeah, that. yeah, okay. <laughs> that's, this is the healing bit. <laughs> At least it's about my healing. And I know it doesn't sound very profound... And I can't really tell you anything about wholeness or arriving or peace or transformation. And I sometimes think it's more about pieces, uh, the loss of what I thought was given, fragmentation, not being able to put it all together. And it may be that, but maybe all those things are just a way into freedom, into creativity. Just before, what really prompted me to, to talk about baby was I, when I was beginning to write this, I read a, a review of a book uh, by an American psychologist in the paper. It was called The Psychological Baby, and I found this quote, and I'll read it to you. Babies learn so fast and play so hard that they completely transform their own world, worldviews, every few months, abandoning all that they once knew and embracing entirely fresh ways of understanding their existence. Really flexible adults might change their minds this way two or three times in a lifetime. Like the greatest artists or engineers, children don't simply observe the world, they also imagine how it could be different. And I like to think that my moment with Klein was one of those, those moments. And it was the place I started out from in middle age, and I've had many adventures in the psychological and spiritual world since those days. And eventually I did the whole lying on a couch thing um, for, for a few years, and I didn't really find out any head understanding. In fact, I, I lost understanding of what make, makes me tick. Um, and, uh, but I found my whole sense of being alter as I ventured beyond my ego's little chartered domain, and what I did discover was how ferociously the ego, our, our, our sense of identity, can defend itself against the appearance of the other's insiders. And, and outsiders, for that matter. I, I can't say I really like my therapist very much. <laughs> and how it will defend its little piece of territory, how it will hide at home rather than risk loss, how it will wedge itself up a blind alley rather than take a chance. But I found out that if you can step beyond that little space and launch yourself into the unknown beyond, suspend your scepticism, the rich and complex person that you are will just possibly, possibly, shyly begin to appear. But even more wonderfully, as you venture along the path of, for want of a better word, not I, into the territory of not knowing, encounters are not only in the inner world, but in the outer as well. New love 
in the inner world will put you in the way of new love and new friendship in the outer as well. So if I'm honest, I couldn't tell you where the healing's coming from. The Zen master Shunrui Suzuki says, our ego is just a swinging door between our outer and inner world, and ultimately, inner and outer are the same. And Suzuki brings me back to that baby. Remember the one who's up for for anything, except for any organisational things within the Unitarian Church? (laughs) (laughs) He invented the term beginner's mind, which, it occurs to me, could be equally described as baby's mind. This is the attitude he recommends you cultivate, not only during each session of meditation, but also in life itself. He said, the beginner's mind is full of possibilities. The expert's has few. And I'm going to end with Rumi. And I think he perhaps more fully, for me, describes the freedom of the path of allowing not I to to rise up. This is the end of his poem, Buoyancy. So the sea journey goes on, and who knows where? Just to be held by the ocean is the best luck we could have. It's a total waking up. Why should we grieve that we've been sleeping? It doesn't matter how long we've been unconscious. We're groggy, but let the guilt go. Feel the motions of tenderness around you, the buoyancy. Spend a minute in silence now, (coughs) breathing in. to ask you three questions just leave each one with you for 20 seconds or so and then when those have sunk in a bit to to go into pairs again as you did yesterday and just to explore just to hear each other's voices a bit on these these you know it's chunky questions of life the first is have you ever felt trapped by an identity that you took on. (coughs) The second is, have there been times in your life when you've lost your sense of a small self and perhaps found something greater?
thirties, have love and work both helped and hindered you in life? Find somebody to speak with now. I'm not to answer those three questions. <laughs> merely, merely to have the chance to speak and to listen with another person about any of these sorts of themes that might have been brought up by Rob's talk today, which I thank you very much indeed, Rob. So if you could find a, a pair and let's just speak until five past ten on this <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. How do we pilgrims best find our way on these journeys of our lives? Do you, like me, sometimes find that the very trickiest of tasks? Choosing a direction and trusting it's the best thing to do, the right time to do it. I know you, like I, will have found some ways, some methods, if you like, of choosing over the years. There's sitting quietly, listening for that inner prompting. Or sometimes I try the opposite and just choose quickly, going with that first impulse, trusting that, that if that doesn't then seem right, well, I can choose again. Carl Jung developed the idea of finding your personal myth to live by, the key narrative that resonates with you, that inspires you and encourages you to be fully the self you're capable of being. Joseph Campbell coined the phrase, follow your bliss. Reminiscent of Carlos Castaneda's teacher, Don Juan, who taught that all paths are the same, leading nowhere, therefore pick the path with heart. Ancient writers too knew the importance of matching the path and the person. In the Upanishads it's written that you are what your deep, driving desire is. This, I think, is possibly the thread of gold that we sang of in, in that hymn earlier on. And when we have chosen our path, of course, the next thing we have to do is consider travelling alone or in company. In that story we heard yesterday of the Zen monk who pointed out to his brother that since he could neither do his own walking or his eating or his urinating for him, well, he might as well just set out on his own. The message is clear that the spiritual path is one we ultimately walk alone. It's our own journey of exploration. The struggles will be uniquely ours, as will the learnings. I, I know this to be true, and yet it's sometimes a bit jarring to imagine this crowded world of ours with billions of people individually engaged in their own personal growth and development. And of course that is, I've got a whole piece here that you're going to miss now about economic development. Of course that is very much a Western model, not at all you know, related to, to people living in economies that are developing, in inverted commas. And even this presupposes that we have some kind of choice in the matter. It may sometimes seem that our finding of walking companions on this journey of life is strangely out of our control. So often in the 21st century, we find ourselves alone when we yearn for a companion, or companioned when we might well rather choose to be alone. I think fortunate is the person who's comfortable and at peace with whatever situation they find themselves in with regard to relatedness with others. And then when you are with a companion on the pilgrim path, we'll stick together for long enough and dilemmas will surely emerge. <laughs> how important is that message of writing in sand and stone, and how challenging it is to know what to write in which medium. And with a companion or alone, the essential pilgrim task is to stay awake. 
That's not just as in not snoring, but awake as in aware and alert. And alert, just not in the need to avoid potholes or approaching cliff edges, but alert to your inner world, the inner process and progress. So bodily, we put one foot in front of the other in a rhythm, in a rhythm that requires no conscious attention so that we can turn inwards and focus on our mission. And the pilgrim's mission is not ultimately to get from A to B, but rather to remember. And again, I'll call on Rumi to back me up at this point. In one of his stories, he compares our human predicament to being emissaries, sent to a foreign land by a king who has entrusted us to perform a specific task. And unfortunately, we have forgotten our mission and become embroiled with a thousand and one distractions. And this divinely ordained mission that we must not forget, Rumi says, is to spiritually awaken. And if we are going to spiritually awaken on the journey of life, from time to time, we need to stop and take stock. And stopping and all that might stop us will be the theme for tomorrow. <laughs> Go well.